preaching palooza since Kelvin so rudely ended it last week. <laughs> he did a great job. <laughs> but it just it was like a knife in the horror, I told you. Wait, wait. He said every time Kelvin makes a request, <laughs> I was like, oh, and then I hear Bridget in the back. Amen. I'm like, oh man. I talked to her about that. I've got some handouts. Uh, you guys, can you help me out? Pass them around. There's a few. There's a few. Any extras? Just throw it over there, guys. All right, as we're passing that out, everybody, get your Bible out. You guys are going to be following along in your own Bible. Everybody get your Bible out, hold it in the air. Everybody say, Word! Word. All right, nice. Pretty good. You guys are going to be following along. I've given you papers. Nice, yeah. Hold your papers in the air. Everybody say, Note! Note. All right, good. And there's a little section. It is a note. There's questions to answer, help you follow along. Uh, but then at the bottom, you can make notes. But also, one of the things that we want to do, I think, at least at a, as we start, as we get into our home fellowships, one of the things that we're, the way we're going to, I guess, structure our conversations are going to be taking the sermon to the content and going a little bit deeper. So you're going to be hearing it Sunday morning uh, and then talking about it and discussing it uh, during the week. So just, just double. There's so many times I've, I've preached a sermon and then... You know, a month or whatever, it's like, man, I need to preach that again. They just need to hear it. <laughs> uh, it, it, it. To be honest, it just sermons aren't that effective. We, uh, so but getting into it together and talking about it, helping apply it to our lives, um, I'm, I'm really excited. I'm really excited for these home fellowships. All right, and who's the man? Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Lord, we want to make much of you this morning. It's not me, it's not us, it's nobody but you. So, Lord, help us, even right now, by stirring in us a desire for you. As we read your word, we ask, God, that we would be looking for you, that we would be wanting to see you and to learn about you, to fellowship with you. Lord, we pray for fellowship with you and with each other. So, Lord, give us, as Victor prayed, Lord, we just pray it again. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. Lord, speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at Hebrews chapter 1. I guess two weeks ago, started this. Uh, we're going to continue on through Hebrews. Aslan is going to be preaching in two weeks. He'll be continuing on uh, in Hebrews, and, and then I'll pick it back up. But we saw from the very beginning, Hebrews is a book about Jesus. Who is it about? Jesus. Hebrews is a book about Jesus. You can't get out of the first five verses without seeing that this book is focused on the person and the work of Jesus. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. I'm going to read 3 through 5. It says, The Son, that's Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he, Jesus, became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So we see that there. It's all about Jesus and his work. But then over and over in, in Hebrews, there's this 
theme that Jesus is better. We're going to keep this up here for as long as it takes. Jesus is better. He is greater. He's more excellent than. He's superior to everything else. Is there anything where, where, where the young man and I said, Jesus is better than, and he, and he yelled out everything. I'm still praying that he gets it. He believes it in his, uh, deep down in his heart. Yeah, right there. He is better than everything. And throughout this letter, we're going to see that Hebrews keeps making this, this comparative better because he knows that the people he's writing to, that, that, that this congregation that he's so familiar with, they know traditions. He knows them, and he knows that they love heartless religion. And he's warning them, don't be satisfied with your do's and don'ts. Don't be satisfied with religion and tradition. Those things are, are fading, and they pale in comparison to the author and the finisher of our faith. He's warning them to, to reject those things, but embrace Jesus. And I feel that we need to hear it this morning. But we can hear it this morning. I mean, we look around. The author is getting into this exhortation. Um, this is actually our first exhortation. There's this pattern in, in the Bible. You guys will probably see it. There's doctrine and then application. There's theology and then exhortation. The Bible never leaves its, its theology just, just dangling or hanging in the air. It always brings it back to the practical, to the, to the eternal issues of life, and that's exactly what happens in this passage. So he spent a whole chapter arguing for the superiority of Jesus in chapter 1, for the all-sufficiency, all-supremacy of Jesus, and now he brings it back, and he asks the question, or pardon me, he answers the question that many of you may have asked. So what? What's the significance of Jesus being superior to angels? What's the implication of Jesus being better? What's the practical effect of that truth on my life? You guys, the, the Word of God, anytime we read it, whether you're, on, you're, you're just in your own quiet time, or you're in a small group, and, and even Sunday morning, especially Sunday morning, Anytime the Word of God is shared, it demands a response. That's the point. The Word of God always demands that somebody reacts to it. And you do react to it one way or the other. It may add to like, any, any effective teacher, whether it's against a small group or one of our preacher pollutant people, any effective preacher, teacher, must do a lot more than just dispose facts. We know facts. We can gather facts. Anyone can go out and, and gather facts. You don't just dump them on the hearer. Any really effective teacher warns people and, then, and shares these facts and then exhorts them and invites them to take action. So before we read, I, I, I want to just pray once more. Knowing that we all respond to the word, and it demands a response, let's pray that the Lord helps us give us a proper response, the right response to God's word this morning. So again, Lord, we just make ourselves available. Speak to us this morning. Help us respond the way we should. Not, not hiding, not guarding, but being open to your word. Holy Spirit, we are desperate for it. We are praying again. 
Help us this morning. Help us. Let's read. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So what I almost said earlier, my guess is this morning, there's not many of us gathered here who are ready to deny or reject Jesus outright. And if you are, I'm really glad you're here. <laughs> but looking around, there's not many of us who are ready right now to just outright reject Jesus. But I would say there are probably some of us who are in danger of drifting away from him. Someone may be in danger of underestimating him, of not adequately appreciating all who he is and all that he's done. Of not, someone's in the danger of taking him for granted. A commentator on this passage said, Hell is undoubtedly full of people who are not actively opposed to Jesus, but who simply drifted into damnation by neglecting to respond to the gospel. And I believe the author of Hebrews is concerned with that. I'm concerned with that. And we want to address it right here in this passage. So this morning, I want you to see three things. The first thing, and I believe this is what the author of Hebrews is telling us, the gospel must be taken seriously. It's not a joking matter. That's what verse 1 is, is about. Look, Let's read it again. We must pay the most careful attention. The most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. What he's saying is that the gospel must be taken seriously. You can't just be flipping about it. He's outlined for us in Hebrews chapter 1, it's, it's the gospel. He's been pointing us to Jesus. He told us who Jesus is. He told us what he accomplished in his work. He's pointing us to the person and the work of Jesus, and in, in its essence, that's the gospel message. The gospel is all about Jesus. The true gospel always presents Jesus in such a way that it lifts him up, makes him look more valuable than anything else, a treasure above all of The gospel is a declaration from God to us about who Jesus is and what he has done for our salvation. And the author of Hebrews is, in the very first chapter, the very, pardon me, first verse of chapter 2 says, you've got to take it seriously. You can't just ignore this gospel message. You can't just put it off till later. We must, as he says, pay the much closer attention to what we've learned. He, he's just stressing the importance of paying attention. 
of thinking about it, meditating on it, applying it to your life. Not just hearing it and saying, okay, I got that, let me move on, but, but paying a careful attention. Like, like when I'm trying to fix my car, you know, I've got the YouTube video going. I probably watch that thing, University of YouTube. That's how I do anything on my car, and I really don't do much. I'm probably like, that's how I like, I watch the video of how to pump the tire up. But, but I pay careful attention because I don't want any extra parts after I'm done. <laughs> I always end up having extra parts, too. I don't, you, get, you get what I'm saying? Like, like, if it was urgent, if it was important, if we felt the, the life and death urgency of fixing your car correctly like we do, or pardon me, if we felt that urgency in the gospel, we would pay careful attention, make sure that we got it right. Make sure that we are doing what we are supposed to do. We're not doing what we're not supposed to do. He's saying that here to us. So I don't think there's any of us here this morning that are being tempted to abandon Jesus and go to Judaism. Like the original recipients of the letter. But it's entirely possible that we are all vulnerable to apathy. It's entirely possible that we are vulnerable to indifference to Jesus and the gospel truth. And the author of Hebrews is speaking to us today, and he's saying with great wisdom, the same message Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20 said. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. You must not neglect the gospel. The gospel must be heard, we know that. It must be believed, we know that. And it must be embraced. Allow it to affect every part of your daily life. And that's really, I, I, I think that message right there, that point, we could wrap up and go. But I'm not going to. <laughs> but I, I, I think he, he, this is his main point, And he's going to support it with a few other points. So we're going to see that over the next few points. He's just emphasizing this main point. Take the gospel seriously, kids. Think about it. Meditate on it. Do you really know it? Parents, are you, are you, are you really living it? Are, are you really... Do you really have it? So the second thing I want you to see, and this is especially in verses 2 and 3, the point, the point is here. The gospel must be taken seriously because... Someone greater than Moses is involved. He's addressing not just the importance of the gospel, but he's addressing the consequences of not embracing it. It's not that you're just missing something great. There's actually something terrible at stake that might happen if you miss it. Look at verse 2. For since the message spoken through the angels was binding... And every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? His point is this. Guys, if, if disobedience of, of God's people, the disobedience of God's people in the Old Testament resulted in God's judging them for their sins. I mean, there were times when the earth would open up and swallow them. Fire would come down and extinguish them. Bears would come out and, and, and just ravage them. If, if, if that kind of stuff, if that was just and right, 
What will happen if you reject the way of salvation that he's provided for you? Turn with me to Jeremiah 14 and 15. I just want to show this for a minute. Jeremiah 14 and 15. Just just for instance, verse 11 of chapter 14. God says to the prophet Jeremiah, Do not pray for the well-being of this people. That's God's word to his prophet. Does that that give you chills? To think that God would just cut it off? Don't pray for them. God says to his prophet, don't pray for this people. Why? Because they were hypocrites. Don't read it all right now, but you can mark it, come back to it. Don't pray for them. Don't pray for their well-being because they're they're hypocrites. You know, they, they make great noise about believing in me, about being my people, but they break my laws. They're unrepentant. They don't care. And God says to the prophet, don't pray for them. And he announces, he actually goes on, and he announces that he's going to pronounce judgment on them. Look at verse 12 in the following. What's the judgment going to be? It says, I will destroy them with sword, famine, and plague. God ain't joking. He ain't playing around. We just sang that song, God is holy. That's the first thought. I just kept thinking, man, do I just play with him way too much? Don't play with God. He ain't joking. He ain't playing. And he specifies after saying sword, famine, and plague again in chapter 5. You look at, look, at, look at verse 3 of chapter 15. He even tells you the specific kinds of destroyers that he's going to appoint. The sword, dogs, birds, and beasts. They're all going to be used as instruments of his just judgment on them. So the author of Hebrews, remembering this, knowing that his people are familiar with this, is saying, if God brought a just judgment on those people of the Old Testament who disobeyed the law given to them by God's prophets, and you neglect the way of salvation he's providing you through his son, how much better do you think it's going to go for you? They got that when they disobeyed his prophets. You are ignoring his son. The gospel must be taken seriously. It is the way that God has provided for your salvation. Some of you guys know the story of, of Lance Armstrong. I thought Eric would give me a, a, a hoo or, or a right on. Lance Armstrong, maybe you'll like him because he knows the story. Some of you guys aren't, aren't familiar with this guy. Let me, let me just say, Lance Armstrong was, is or was an American cyclist who won the Tour de France, which is like the ultimate race. Just goes on and on and on. It's huge. He won it, not only won it, but he won it seven times. And I think he won it seven times in a row. He was the most famous American cyclist in the late 90s, early 2000s. I sold tons of bicycles because it's what he rode. And, and over the past few years, I mean, I guess in the early still 2000s and coming to more recent, he's been dogged by accusations that during that time he was illegally using illegal performance-enhancing drugs. That he was, he was actually blood doping. He was having uh, uh, his blood changed out so that uh, it would get his oxygen levels up so that he could then perform at a higher level than the other cyclists. 
So he was cheating. And, and recently, he's actually been stripped of all of his titles by cycling federations in, in USA and all over the world. And he's come under intense legal scrutiny. All the teams that supported him are just, are just all over him. But all along, get this, this is my point, all along, he denied doing it. He said, no, I didn't do it. In 2013, he went to the high priestess of American culture, Oprah Winfrey. And American culture. And he made a, a confession. And he, he admitted to it. He, he just like had to get it off his chest. He admitted to doping. But, but understand this. He actually sued the people. He, he brought litigation to the people who were saying he did it and they helped him do it. So all the time he was denying it, he was saying no and actually suing people that said, and now he comes out and he admits it. But here, here's the interesting thing. He, he, he wrote a book, an autobiography titled, It's Not About the Bike, which I didn't like because I sold bikes. I was like, yeah, it's about the bike. <laughs> uh, but in that autobiography, at one point, he's, he's musing about God. And he said, I'm not uh, affiliated with any particular church, but then he says something like this. If I'm going to be judged someday by somebody, and he gave a capital B, puts a capital B in there, by somebody, if there's judgment for me by somebody, I hope it won't be on the basis of what church I've joined or whether I've been baptized. But I hope that he will take into account the whole of my life. You want to think about that again? Understanding what he did, what he continued to do, I mean, the author of Hebrews is saying, when you're standing there that day, you don't want the, the basis of your innocence or your guilt or your, your acceptance or your condemnation to be that somebody will take into account the whole of your life. You know, we see in our culture sometimes, we, we, we get people, politicians, even, even preachers, sometimes the curtain is, is pulled back on these celebrity figures. And we're able to see the junk that they try to hide for so long. And, you know, most of us around here, I think most of us in this room, probably wouldn't want the curtain pulled back in our lives. We know there's junk. We know there's stuff that we're not, we're not proud of. We don't want the whole world looking in. If we know ourselves and we are honest with ourselves, we would not want to stand before a holy God and say, God, accept me because you've taken into account all that I've done. That's terrifying. The author of Hebrews is saying, you've got to take the gospel seriously because I'll show you what happens to someone who is judged on the basis of God taking account the whole of their lives. When, you guys, when you're standing there on that day, you want to be standing robed in the righteousness of Jesus, not in your own filthy rags. You want to be clothed in the cleansing, forgiving blood of Jesus Christ. You want to be standing there in who Jesus is and what he's done, not what who you are and what you've done. And that's available to you in faith in Jesus. And the author of Hebrews is saying, surely, surely if the Old Testament people received what they had coming, we've heard the gospel. We've heard the claims of Jesus. And yet we rejected him and his salvation. Surely we've got something great coming. Guys, in the last day, I hope when you're judged, it won't be based on your whole life, but it will be that you have, have stepped under the 
cleansing, this fountain of Jesus' righteousness. We say, I love, I love this saying, God treated Jesus on the cross as if he lived your life. So that at the end, he could treat you as if you lived his life. And so there's that exchange. And it's amazing. That's the gospel. We've got to take it seriously. And then the, the, the author here in Hebrews, he doesn't just throw it out there. He doesn't just state that case. He actually presses it home. He, he, he's going to pound it in. And he says the evidence, the, the testimony that God has given it to you, that, that it's true, is there. And I want you to see that in verse 3 and 4. Look at the end of verse 3 and then verse 4. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Isn't this, isn't this fascinating? What he's saying here is that we need to take the gospel seriously because it's true. we got to take it seriously because it's true. It's been confirmed by God himself. He's testified to it. And that's the point at the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4. God has confirmed it through witnesses of the apostles, through, through signs and wonders. And it, it's interesting by saying that what he says in verse 3, you know that this congregation is not one of these early congregations that, that, that witnessed it for themselves. They didn't have direct, first-hand account of Jesus' resurrection. They had to hear it from somebody else. A lot like us. They had to learn what they knew about Jesus from preaching of the apostles, from other witnesses. So the message that they had heard, this message about Jesus, they hadn't heard it directly. That's encouraging. And the author of Hebrews presses home. And it's a very good thing. He says, because it's, isn't, it, let me think about this. Isn't it interesting? It's not just one person who's made this claim to you. See, but it's not just one person who, who, who has come out and said, Jesus did all this, and this is what it means, and this is how you apply it to your life. It's not just the word of one guy. It's all of these people who have witnessed it. They've confirmed it, this message that I'm preaching to you. Guys, when, when I stand up here and I, and I preach, or any of us, we come, we come up here and we're preaching the word of God. I'm not preaching to you some, some revelation that I got in my closet this week that I and only I of all the mortal beings on earth have ever heard. It's not something unique necessarily and special. The Lord, you know, I believe there's a, a, a bit of that in there. But it's God's word. The same word you're holding on your lap. That's the message we're sharing. You know what I'm saying? That's encouraging. I'm preaching the same from the same Bible that thousands of other gospel preaching ministers around the world are preaching right now and for the last 2,000 years, Christians, based on the, on the apostles, based on the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, have been preaching. That ought to encourage you. This is not, like, we're not putting our hope on, on just some guy. You're not putting your, your hope on me. It's God's word that we build our life on. And it's been confirmed. It's been, it's been made known to us. And then he says in verse 4, not only that, but God himself has, has confirmed this truth by signs and wonders and miracles 
and this, this, I, I was thinking about this response you may have to this. Don't think that they were more gullible than us. People back then were not just more gullible than we are. I mean, a miracle or something like that might happen today. We're thinking, oh, science. We we're not fooled by that. You know, we we, we try to we explain these things away. They were more sophisticated. We're we're more smart. Science. We know things just don't happen like that. They weren't more gullible. Understand this. Miracles didn't happen all the time. Back then, it wasn't like you just woke up every day and you had a miracle. Which you could say waking up every day is a miracle with how frail life is. But have you, have you studied the Bible over the 6,000 years or history that it covers? There's maybe three or four major periods where miracles happened. Miracles happened in the time of Moses. They happened in the time of Elijah and Elisha. They happened in Jesus' ministry and after. Even John the Baptist didn't do miracles. And he was right on the forefront of Jesus' ministry. My point is this. Miracles don't happen every day. So when it happened to them, they knew something special was happening. They weren't just gullible. It was confirmed. These were true miracles. When it says it was a miracle, it was a miracle. People weren't just gullible when they saw a miracle. They, they, they saw something, and, and they knew exactly, man, this is serious. This is real. We've got to pay attention. And the reason... The reason the author of Hebrews tells us that is God gave those signs, he, he gave those wonders and those, those miracles to attest to the truth that was being proclaimed. People are always proclaiming truth. Everywhere you look, someone's got the word, someone's got the new thing. Truth is always being packaged, quote-unquote truth. But our truth has been confirmed. We know our truth is true. Our truth is true. We believe the message of Jesus is true, and we accept it, not just because it's good, but because, and not just because we want to be forgiven, but because it is true. C.S. Lewis, you ever heard of him? C.S. Lewis? 60 or 70 years ago, he, he stressed, he said, it's so important for us to understand and embrace the gospel, not just because it's good, but because it's true. I think it's so important for us to know the confirmations of all, I mean, think about even just the Word of God and how the, uh, the Word of God, our, our Bible, how much criticism and critique it's had over years, and, it, and it, it, it's, it's held up. That ought to fuel us and give us more confidence in it. And it's especially important today. Things have changed a lot in the, in the last years. I mean, even the, the middle-aged group, you young guys, you, you've seen it. I've been thinking about this, and one of the things is, and I'm certain that unbelief and some, the allergy to truth that exists now was not as pervasive as it is just a few years ago. We live in a world where you just, you just wake up, and it's immediately implausible for people to believe the gospel, to believe that it's true. And that's probably the enemy just bringing so many false and, and lies to them. They just like, what is truth? It's exactly what Pontius Pilate says. What is truth? It's implausible to people. It seems impossible to them that this that the claims of Christianity could be true. And here's the author of Hebrews. 2,000 years before the toxic unbelief has taken hold of our culture, saying to Christians, then and now, the gospel is true. It's attested. 
It's confirmed. God himself testified to it. Just, just one last rabbit trail real quick. 500 eyewitnesses to his resurrection, right? 500 eyewitnesses. That's more eyewitnesses than people who saw Abraham Lincoln get murdered, assassinated. But we believe that. It's just, it's attested. It's true. If you look at two other major world religions, if you look at Islam or Mormonism, guys, the central books that contain their, the truth of those religions, like the, the Quran or the Book of Mormon, they came from one man, each over a very short period of time. The, the entire religion is based upon what one man says was a revelation given to him personally by God, which incidentally, nobody else heard. Incidentally, no one else could attest. No one was around them in a position to confirm that anything went on, whereas the Bible was given over 1,500 years. But dozens of different authors had hundreds of witnesses attesting to the same message. That's crazy. Crazy awesome. That should encourage you. God even gave the word to the world in such a way that its message could be attested. Why? Why is this important? Because God is concerned about truth. He doesn't want us just following every every whim or, or, or fantasy and fairy tale. He wants our lives to be to be founded on it. He wants us to, to walk in the confidence of knowing this is true. The gospel must be taken seriously because it's true. It has eternal consequences, and it's the only way of salvation. So because of the magnificence of the person of Christ, because of the confirmed testimony of the gospel, we must pay careful attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away. Guys, a person who understands who Jesus is, I think that's just about everybody here, many people probably watching, we understand who Jesus is, but a person who understands who Jesus is and rejects him is a fool above all fools. Scripture even says that. A fool says in his heart there is no God. But also, also, and this is where we might be, the person who understands who Jesus is and understands what he has done, but does not give careful attention to all that they've heard, is a fool above all fools. Uh, in closing, and I say that, but I've got seven more pages. I want to take, I really do, to just get comfortable. I want to take this verse apart just a little bit more and see how it's used in the Greek. There's two Greek words. Prosiko, which is a very important word. Prosiko means to give attention to. And it's translated here, we ought to give the most or the more earnest heed. That's just one verse to give the most earnest heed. Prosiko. The other one is, I can't pronounce it. Pararamamun. If it, if Get it right. Paramin. Uh, I'll spell it for you. And it's translated into several meanings, though. Uh, it, it really means to, to let slip. In the simplest sense, to let slip. So one of them means give attention to, and the other means kind of to, to let slip. Now let me, let me just take this apart. The word prosico, again translated, you ought to give the most or the more earnest heed is the word that's very emphatic. It means give attention to, pay attention, be careful. 
And the writer is saying on the basis of, of who Christ is and the confirmation of God's word, we must give careful attention to the things we've heard about him. We can't just hear these things and let them slide through our brains in one ear and out the other. We've got to be careful as to what we're listening to. And then word, the word paramimimim translates into pedizzle, <laughs> into several meanings. It, 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 something is flowing or slipping past. It could be used like, like a ring slipping off a finger. It could be used like, 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 like a raft slipping away because it wasn't tied up. Slipping away with the current. And it's regularly used of something which is carelessly or thoughtlessly been allowed to slip away. And both are very, very different significance. But, but watch how they, how they come together. They both have a, a nautical significance, having to do with ships that are used. And it's such a, a great illustration uh, coming from our, our lake vacation. There's significance here. The first one, prosticle, means to moor up a ship, to, to tie it up. The second one means use of a ship that has been carelessly not tied up, but allowed to slip out of the harbor. And so these words have a different kind of meaning, but they're translated like this. Therefore, must we the more eagerly anchor our lives to the things which we have been taught, lest the ship of life pass the harbor of salvation and be lost forever. That's huge. Like I said, especially just being on the lake and having the boat get away. We're like, no, no. This is huge. And, and, and it's scary. This is so graphic. It just, it just tells us how it is. It's not that men go headlong diving and plunging into hell, you know. I mean, some people are. We're, we're hell-bent. We're just singing that song or on the highway to hell. But most people, they just, they just drift into it. And then I said, many of us, again, being in the church, feeling, feeling the safety of Christian America, we're at danger of just drifting. Most people, again, don't deliberately just in one moment turn their backs on God and start cursing Him. Most people slowly, almost imperceptibly, slip past the harbor. Headed straight for the rocks of destruction. One writer puts it this way. There is a tide in the affairs of men. Taken at its ebbs leads to victory. Neglected, the shores and strands of time are strewn with the wreckage. And that's right. This isn't a, a, an ignorant sailor. This is not an unbelieving sailor. This is a careless sailor. Guys, don't be careless. As you're following hard off the guard, as you're leading your children, as you're being a part of this, discipling one another, as iron sharpens iron, don't be careless in that endeavor. So take the heed. And you'll notice what he says, take heed to the things which we've heard. I mean, the Jews like you, they heard the gospel. They heard it from missionaries, apostolic missionaries, but they hadn't made the personal application. They hadn't heard, they, they just heard it. And I love what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 44. He says, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. But if you actually like pull up Bible Hub and start looking at the Greek, in some translations, ESV, if you have it, they say this. Let these words 
sink into your ears. Isn't that good? Let these words sink in. Get them up in your head. Let them in. I mean, let, let it get inside of you. Let it make a change in your life. It's not enough just to hear it. And I'm just, as pastors, I, I, I see you guys. I see, I see your lives. I see you come. I see so many who just come. And, and, and no sooner as you leave the door, you're on to something else. You're on to, to whatever else is on your mind. And this time is over. All you did was listen. Remember the Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20. It says, My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Don't let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Don't just walk out these doors and, and, and forget it. Give careful attention. When you hear the word of God, make it yours. It's not enough to let it just drift in your ears. That's the most dangerous thing you can do. So when they heard the word of God, but they had heard it, but they hadn't made a commitment to it, and the author is just telling them, be careful about that. The ultimate tragedy, the ultimate tragedy, it keeps coming back to the same point, is for people to come, hearing the gospel, and sit and, and hearing the gospel, having it told to them, having it preached to them, having it shared with them, and they just keep slipping carelessly, almost imperceptibly. And sometimes they wake up destroyed. I want you to notice uh, just a few more things. This verse gives indication. It's not that the word of God slips. That's not the indication at all. The original Greek would indicate that it's not the word of God that slips. It's men. Lest we slip away. We slip away. The word of God never drifts. The harbor of salvation is static. It's there. It's rooted. It's on a rock. It's on Jesus. It never changes. We slip away. It never moves. It never changes. It's always available until the time man has slipped past it and it's too late. I wonder sometimes how many thousands of people in hell were so close to salvation. How many thousands of were, were so close to being safely brought in and tied up and anchored, but they drifted down. Drifting, you see, guys, it, it's so quiet, it's so easy. And it's so damning. All you need to do to go to hell is do nothing. You ever heard that? All you got to do is do nothing. I don't understand really how anyone who, who, who can hear who Jesus is, the testimony, the confirmation, Holy Spirit just is telling them, uh, anyone who knows even the character of Jesus can reject him and not center their life around him. And so the hearer is urged, the Hebrew, the author of Hebrews is Urging people, respond to Jesus. Give careful attention. I read a story about an explorer. Ever heard of this older guy, uh, Edward Perry? He's an explorer, Edward Perry. He took a crew to the Arctic Ocean. And they were endeavoring to move further north than, than some of their chartings. And so, so they charted their locations by the stars. And they started a, a very difficult and treacherous march north. I mean, and they walked, and they walked 
hour upon hour upon hour for, for a long time, and finally in, in weariness, just being totally exhausted, they stopped their walking north, and they took their bearings again. They, they looked from their stars. They charted their, their, their location, and they found out they were further south than when they had begun. And they discovered they had been walking on an ice flow that was moving south faster than they could move north. I wonder how many people think their good deeds and their merits and their religiousness is taking them step by step to God when in fact they're on an ice flow moving south infinitely faster than any steps you could ever take. And that's the tragedy of it. So many people think they're, oh, they're moving their way forward in legalism. Putting the time in, doing this, doing that. They haven't given careful attention. They don't have it. They haven't laid claim. And then one day they're going to wake up like Edward Perry's crew did in the midst of a disaster and seeing a, a, a lifetime of going backwards. Don't be satisfied with your religious feelings, guys. Don't be satisfied with just coming to church. Don't be satisfied with be, be maybe being married to a Christian spouse. Don't be satisfied with your church activity. Or you could be drifting into a Christless hell. Unless you've made that person, that personal commitment to him. You've responded to the gospel. You've embraced it. And you give careful attention to all that you've heard. So a man is a fool. My last sentence. A man is a fool to reject salvation offered in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the warning. You gotta help us take inventory. Help us be honest and truthful with ourselves. Lord, we ask for help. Open our eyes. And in this moment right now, Lord, change us. Lord, help us respond to the gospel, putting our, our faith in it. Lord, help us embrace the gospel, applying it to our life daily. Being careful that we that we have it and we live upon it. Lord, I ask God for help in this moment as you apply this, your word, you apply it to our lives. I ask for power. I ask for grace. Lord, I ask for forgiveness. Lord, we ask for and pray for salvation. Lord, you apply it to our life, Holy Spirit, and so we ask you to move freely and help us. Help us. In your name we pray. Amen. So we have your notes. This again, this is something that, that I feel like the author is just telling us, be careful. But as we look at what discipleship is, it's obeying, following all that Jesus commanded. And I, and I believe the Lord is going to reveal some of those areas in our life where we, we're not giving careful attention. We're not really walking. We're not really maybe even embracing the gospel, but we're still living in religiousness or legalism. And in these small groups, I want you guys to make your notes. If, if God is speaking something to you in that bottom section, write it. Share it with somebody. Bring it to your small group. And we'll talk about it. We'll, we'll flesh it out. All right. Anything else I forgot? Don't, don't forget. we got our announcements. We'll get the word out. Um, I love you guys. Let's, let's, let's talk about it now. You guys are dismissed, though. See ya.